Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute endorsement of any product by any of these entities. Hi, my name is Jerry Maloney, and I'm here to talk to you today about management of bleeding in the anticoagulated patient. Okay, hot to clot. Um, I'm the Associate Medical Director for the ER at the Cleveland VA, and I'm also Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Case Western. Um, I am also a Lieutenant Colonel in the Army Reserve and an OIF veteran. I have no disclosures to make. So our objectives for this topic... Um, we list the different anticoagulant drugs and their indications, review the lab testing anticoagulated patient, define what constitutes major bleeding anticoagulated patient, discuss reversal agents used and their supporting evidence. So going to start things off with a case presentation. 63-year-old male with a history of AFib and alcohol abuse presents for distant jaw swelling for the past few days. He's on 5 milligrams of warfarin a day. His last INR check a month ago was 1.8. He's not on any new medications, no history of trauma, um, the sun does report that he'll miss some dose and double up to catch up on his warfarin. So this is the when I walk in the room, what do I see picture. And in this case, what I saw was something that made me very, very nervous right off the bat. So in terms of his vital signs, he's afebrile, slightly tachycardic and hypertensive, tachypnic and satting. borderline low, 92% on Romare. He's alert and looks a little bit anxious. He can open his jaw a couple of finger breaths. As from the picture, you can see there's pretty much nothing but tongue in there. Um, the floor of his mouth is hard, tongue's elevated. His submandibular area is full and firm, and he actually has a little bit of ecchymosis in the submandibular area. His lungs are slightly diminished bilaterally. He's tacky and irregular. He's an AFib on the telemetry monitor. He's not having any hemoptysis or coughing up any blood right now. So for labs, he's got a normal white blood cell count. His hemoglobin is a little bit lower than baseline. His baseline is around 14. He's 11.3 today. His platelet count's normal at 240. His BMP and LFTs are grossly normal. Um, and his INR comes back greater than 10. So management, what's the best reversal agent given his elevated INR? And are there any other therapies we should give? In a similar vein to... Uh, our other case presentation, this gentleman is somebody who had a recent biopsy of a soft palate mass, um, is on a Pixaban for AFib, had the Pixaban held the day before the procedure, had the procedure, had the Pixaban restarted that night and was fine and for a day or so. And then post-op day number two, he came in coughing up large clots of blood. So in terms of classes of commonly used anticoagulants, when I was a resident, we really had three vitamin K antagonists, heparin and platelet inhibitors. Now we also add in direct thrombin inhibitors and factor 10A inhibitors. Um, 
the veteran key antagonist category, there's really only one that's used therapeutically, which is warfarin. Um, direct thrombin inhibitors were kind of the first of the, what used to call NOACs, novel oral anticoagulants, and DOACs, direct oral anticoagulation agents. Um, dabigatran was the first in that class. Um, they have had some intravenous ones at that time, Bavalarudin and Argatraban. The next class of oral anticoagulants under the DOAC slash NOAC category was the factor 10 inhibitors. Um, and Rivaroxaban was the first in that category, followed by Pixaban, Edoxaban, and kind of the newest kid on the block is Betrixaban. Um, they've had injectable factor 10 inhibitors again longer than they've had oral ones, Fondaparinux, um, which for a while was used at our place for cancer-related thrombosis. Um, heparins, unfractionated heparin, which we don't see used as commonly anymore in the out-of-hospital arenas. It's, we're looking at most of these medications that people are on at home and come into the ED with. Um, low molecular heparin and oxaparin is the most commonly used one, is really um, what we see used for this category. And then platelet inhibitors, the most common of which are aspirin and clopidogrel. So since we're talking about anticoagulants, we do need to go into the coagulation cascade briefly. Um, warfarin causes the most widespread effects on this coagulation cascade. It knocks out what they call the vitamin K-dependent clotting factors, 2, 7, 9, and 10. The end result of all this is that it prevents the activation of 10A, which is the common link in both the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways. Um, 10A is the factor that converts prothrombin into thrombin, and activated thrombin is necessary to convert fibrinogen into fibrin. Without conversion of fibrinogen into fibrin, we can't form that plug to create the clot. Um, the 10A inhibitors don't affect the rest of the cascade the way warfarin does, but they do hit right at 10A itself. Heparin also prevents the activation of 10A and also blocks thrombin to prevent it from activating fibrinogen into fibrin. So do the direct thrombin inhibitors. So when we really get down to it, there's really two points where all these anticoagulants seem to work, 10A or thrombin. But since we do start people on anticoagulation from the ED, it does help to quickly review the indications for these things. Vitamin K antagonists have the broadest indications, mainly because we've been using them the longest, right? So AFib, both valvular and non-valvular fib. Um, DVT or PE, both cancer and non-cancer related. Primary clotting disorders, things like factor V light and protein C and S deficiencies. And also they've been used as prophylaxis after things like joint replacements. The direct thrombin inhibitors have a indication for DVT and PE treatment, non-cancer associated and AFib, non-valvular. The 10A inhibitors, um, pretty similar. They have an added indication for DVT prophylaxis. Um, the other thing that the 10A inhibitors are used for is DVT and PE. It can be used in certain cancer-related ones as well. Um, because of increased bleeding rates with GI and GU cancers, they do not recommend using them for those particular indications. Um, heparin obviously is the preferred one, particularly low molecular heparin for cancer-related thrombosis and for prophylaxis as well. And platelet inhibitors used primarily in stroke and ACS, PCI, although they've been used for other things like DVT prophylaxis, and they've been used in patients with 
AFib who are considered higher risk of being on the stronger anticoagulants. They don't have a primary indication for anticoagulation for any of these other indications per se. So just to go a little bit more into the cancer-related indications, um, they compared apixaban, adoxaban, or rivaroxaban, all to daltaparin, which is another low molecular weight heparin for cancer-associated venous thromboembolus. And interestingly, although they were rated either superior or non-inferior to daltaparin in terms of treatment of cancer-associated VTE, they had higher bleed rates, especially the GI cancers. Um, they are preparing, comparing them to the vitamin K antagonists for these indications as well. Currently, the recommended is no GI or GU malignancy. Um, I bring that up because for those of you working in the VA like me, obviously, I get probably a couple of patients a week that are sent down from CT because they had their staging CT done and they found multiple asymptomatic PEs or they had some other study done and found that they had a DVT. Um, so they get filtered to the ER. So starting them on anticoagulation is something we frequently have to do. Oh, I'm a medical toxicologist by training as well. Um, so I do like to talk about things like kinetics. Um, I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but looking at dabigatran and the most commonly used 10A inhibitors, looking at the tenokine peak plasma concentration, it's pretty similar with all of them, right? Somewhere on th- in, in the minimum one hour and usually about three hours. Um, their half-lives are all relatively similar to adoxaban, somewhat shorter half-life, but the rest of them are somewhere around at least nine and as long in the bigger trans case is 17 hours. And the frequency with most of these once or twice daily, some of this depends on renal function. Um, they are all renally excreted to a significant degree, particularly the bigger trans, which is majority renally excreted. Um, they have antidotes which we'll go into a little bit later, but there's Indexa and um, Daricizumab or Praxbind. And they all take at least 48 hours after the last dose for complete cessation of all pharmacologic activities. So although they like to say you can hold it for a day, if you really want a complete washout of all their anticoagulant activity, you really got to give it 48 hours. So in terms of laboratory testing, so the INR is primarily for vitamin K antagonists, and typically we're looking at a range between 2 and 3, occasionally up to 3.5 for prosthetic valves. On occasion, there will be people who are on higher target INRs based on something that they've worked out with their hematologist, um, but rarely is an INR greater than 3.5, still considered the therapeutic range. So in terms of INR with DOAC, typically the INR is elevated with the DOAC, but it's not a linear relation. It's not like Warframe where you can kind of determine if they're therapeutically anticoagulated based on what their INR is. Frequently it is elevated, not always. So you can also have a patient who is taking a DOAC who has a normal INR, but will still have therapeutic anticoagulation activity. So the bottom line is that the INR is somewhat helpful if it's elevated, at least confirming the patient's taking a DOAC. A normal INR does not exclude that they're taking a DOAC, and there's no real correlation between the INR level and level of anticoagulation. Um, this has come up because I've 
Occasionally people say, well, you know, if we get somebody who comes in and they're stroke syndrome and they're not really responsive, we don't have medical history on them, we can check a quick INR and if it's normal, that unfortunately doesn't exclude a DOAC. So it makes it a lot harder to conclusively exclude their anticoagulate in that case. And the anti-10A is best for the oxabans, low molecular weight heparin, but again, short of some facilities that do a lot of research protocols and stuff with the 10A inhibitors, it's really hard to get a rapid turnaround 10A. Um, the PTT is good for infraction heparin. It can also be elevated with the direct thrombin inhibitors. But again, similar to INR and the DOACs, it's the elevation that you get in PTT with a direct thrombin inhibitor is not correlative of the degree of anticoagulation the same way it is for unfractioned heparin. So how do we define major bleeding? So it's got to be a critical site, right? In the airway, intracranial, pulmonary, pericardial, active GI bleeding. Not, you know, I had a little bit of melana, but I seem to be having severe, like, hematochesia, hematemesis, or an uncontrolled extremity bleed. If they're hemodynamically unstable, if they've lost more than two grams of hemoglobin from their baseline, or if they've been transfused at least two units of packed red blood cells due to the bleeding. So if you're looking for the soundbite slide of this presentation, this is it. The journal steps to major bleeding control. Stop, resuscitate, reverse. So you want to stop your anticoagulant agent, resuscitate the patient, fluids, blood, etc., and reverse the anticoagulant. Um, this is a mantra we get to employ frequently at my shop. We have, on any given month, about 10,000 patients through our facility that are on some type of anticoagulation, typically either vitamin K antagonist or DOAC. There's a, there's a handful of heparins and find a paranexis thrown in there. Um, these patients have a higher ED use rate than the rest of the population, typically. And it's not uncommon at all to see one that comes with some type of bleeding complication. So going on to the agent-specific management, um, each class seems to have a specific reversal agent or therapy. There's some general therapies we look at. I'll talk about those briefly. Things like FFP, transexamic acid, DDAVP, estrogen, and platelet transfusion. Um, but the crux is going to be look at what specific reversal agents we use for the specific type of anticoagulant. So I'm a toxicologist, as I mentioned earlier, so I love antidotes. Um, so looking at our anticoagulants, several of them do have antidotes. Dabigatran has adaricizumab, or the slightly less tongue-twisting Praxbind. Rivaroxaban and apixaban is Andexa-alpha or Andexa. Um, warfarin, the actual antidote for it, is activated vitamin K, and heparin uses protamine. Some other general versatile agents we talked about, again, FFP, four-factor PCC. So vitamin K antagonists, right? So they inhibit vitamin K-dependent clotting factors, which are 2, 7, 9, and 10. And they work by inhibiting something called VKORC, which activates vitamin K. If vitamin K isn't activated, then it cannot help with the formulation of the vitamin K-dependent clotting factors. And the vitamin K that we give intravenously, phytanodione, is actually a K1 or activated vitamin K. So it bypasses the blockade of warfarin. Um, Warfarin, interestingly enough, came from moldy hay. It was described in cows first who were dying from hemorrhage. Um, 
and it was the Wisconsin Area Research Foundation that discovered this. Initially thought it was a heparinoid type of thing, hence the Aran, so that's where the wharf and the warfarin came from. Um, they also use it for rat poison, and they have short and long-acting coumarins. The long-acting ones are not used ever for human treatment, although as a fellow, we certainly followed many people who overdosed on rat poison. Um, I remember one case of a John took long-acting coumarin and was still anticoagulant, still detectable levels in his blood 45 days after his overdose. So some of these long-acting ones really stick around for a while. Um, the advantages to warfarin, we've been using it forever. We know how to monitor it. We have a test that very accurately reflects level anticoagulation with the INR. And because we've used it so much for everything, it's something everybody's familiar with. So there's vast experience with their management. Um, disadvantage is it's got a higher rate of bleeding than pretty much all the other anticoagulants. There's a ton of drug food and drug drug interactions. And there's also widely variable metabolism. So, you know, one patient may get therapeutic with a milligram of warfarin, somebody else may take 10 milligrams. So there's a lot of kind of trial and error with warfarin dose and get somebody therapeutic with their INR. And now for treatment. Um, again, there is an antidote for vitamin K antagonist, and the antidote is vitamin K. Um, they have guidelines to sometimes get super therapeutic INR, but they're not bleeding. If it's less than five, just hold it and don't give anything. It's between five and ten, you can hold it and give a small dose of vitamin K, usually anywhere from one to two and a half milligrams PO or IV. Um, it's greater than 10. They talk about holding it and then giving a dose of vitamin K, again, depending on the situations, two and a half to five milligrams. Um, they do not recommend subcutaneous vitamin K because it's poorly absorbed. Oral is preferred. IV, if the patient can't take oral, there's a small risk of anaphylaxis with IV vitamin K. If they have a major bleeding issue, then they recommend kind of hitting them hard, 10 milligrams of vitamin K IV, and then either FFP or four-factor PCC. So FFP, this has been kind of the long-standing treatment for this. Um, you need to get to at least a minimum about 10% of clotting factors restored to be able to reverse anticoagulation. So if you look at FFP, each unit gives you about 2.5% of those clotting factors. So starting dose is always four units. And the higher the INR, the more you may need. They use a universal donor plasma like AB. And typically, if you give a full dose of FFP for their INR, typically about the best you can correct it to is 1.6. And that gives you about 30 to 50% clotting factor activity of that INR. So typically, you're talking about giving at least a liter of a hypertonic solution if not more than that. So the issue has always been a lot of people who are on warfarin having a cardiomyopathy or AFib, they've got poor EFs, they can't tolerate a lot of fluids. So there's been concerns about limitations with FFP and you can't exactly pressure bag the stuff in. So it takes hours to go in. So you're also not talking about rapidly reversing somebody. You're talking about doing over several hours. So if you need to reverse them more quickly than that, FFP doesn't provide a great option. So now we're looking at four-factor PCC. This is kind of newer on the block. They came up with a three-factor prothrombin complex concentrate. Um, and the three-factor has been used for hemophilia, but the three-factor, because it's missing factor seven, doesn't seem to be as good for reversing warfarin. 
Same with four-factor case centra. The four-factors indication is for warfarin reversal. Um, although it's been used with other bleeding issues, it's only real FDA-approved indications for warfarin reversal. Um, it contains factor 2, 7, 9, and 10. It also contains protein C and S, and it contains some heparin in it as well. The dose is based on the weight in the INR. It's capped at a weight of 100 kilograms. And to give you kind of a conversion, one vial of PCC equals about two units of FFP. With the case centra, you can reverse the INR as low as 1.3 within 30 minutes and usually get about 24 hours of hemostasis. What that means is your bleeding should be completely stopped by four hours and no further reversal agents needed in the next 24 hours after giving case centra. Although it seems to be somewhat helpful in small studies with DOAX, where particularly before they had other antidotal agents where they kind of gave it, it seemed to help some. Um, it doesn't necessarily make sense that it would be a great reversal agent for DOAX. With DOAX, the issue is inhibition of 10A, not deficiency of 10A. So replacing factor 10 isn't necessarily going to be particularly helpful because you still have blockaded the activation of that factor 10. Because it's got heparin, it is contraindicating people with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And in terms of causing clotting issues, it's similar to FFP. So although there's been concern at our place, we actually have a restriction where I have to talk to a hematologist if I want to use this. Hematology's big concern has been that they think there's going to be higher rates of venous thromboembolism because it's more rapid reversal. But looking at the literature, there does not seem to be that risk compared to giving FFP alone. So talking about dabigatran a bit, um, again, it was the first DOAC, highly renally excreted, which has been an issue limiting its use in people with advanced CKD. Um, the dosing is 150 milligrams once to twice daily if the GFR is greater than 30, 75 milligrams if it's 15 to 30. If it's below 15, they don't recommend it. They made a point saying it's the only dialyzable DOAC because before they came out with an actual antidote for it, um, their argument was, well, if you're having severe bleeding, you can dialyze it and remove it, which is possible. But again, to dialyze patients frequently, you have to use heparin as well. Um, you can do a saline kind of anticoagulation as well for the dialysis, but it's not as effective. So dialysis is not a great response to somebody who's acutely bleeding out, um, which pressured them to come up with an antidote. Um, it's indications again, non-valvular AFib, DVT, PE. The thing with this one, though, is compared to looking at the other DOACs, it was studied for DVT, PE after they'd already had five days of parenteral anticoagulation. So you basically had to have them on a heparin drip for five days or Lovenox for five days, and then you could switch them over. Um, it does have DVT prophylaxis indication for one thing, which is post-hip surgery. So now on to the antidote, right? So adaricizumab or praxbind. It's a monoclonal antibody, hence the MAB. It binds both free and thrombin-bound bigotrans. When you give it, it doesn't just bind the stuff that's floating around loose. It actually pulls it off thrombin as well. It is renally excreted, similar to the bigotran itself, and the half-life is about 10.8 hours. So praxpine itself is also dialyzable. That's part of the reason why 
again, for people who are having severe bleeding things, they still recommend dialyzing them to point you can remove the prax spine with dialysis. And the dose is five grams, which is two 2.5 gram vials. When I talked to the rep a few years ago, each vial was $2,500 roughly. So it's about a buck a milligram. So that makes it fairly expensive. Again, it's a monoclonal antibody, so it's not surprising. Um, the Praxbind does not seem to have an aging thing to it, i.e. it doesn't eventually unbind after a while, like some things we worried about, like digibind. So the Praxbind seems to form kind of an irreversible ionic bond with the dibigatran. So you don't have to worry about the Praxbind eventually unbinding the patient becoming re-anticoagulated. Um, as with all of these things, there is a risk of rebound thrombosis after you use it because these patients obviously had an indication beyond it in the first place. So now we're talking about the rest of the DOAX, a group that I call the oxabans. So there was rivaroxaban, kind of the first one, apixaban, which is the other most widely used oxaban, edoxaban, and batrixaban. So... All of these are activated 10A inhibitors. So they bind to activate 10A and prevent it from activating thrombinogen to thrombin. So it makes it impossible for you to then activate fibrin and form that clot. Um, their rival has really kind of changed the face of anticoagulation. Single dose and they start the anticoagulant activity right away. There's no ramping up and waiting a few days like you have with warfarin. Um, they've been shown to be as effective as warfarin for most indications. And their overall bleeding risk seems to be lower than warfarin as well. So they've absolutely changed the world of managing thrombotic disorders. I've because of the availability of the oxabans through the VA, I've rarely had to admit people with uncomplicated EVTs anymore. And so next up, talking about the oxabans, um, as I said, they're all anti-10As. Um, Rivaroxaban and apixaban have indications, along with edoxaban for DVT-PE management, except for patients with GI and GU cancers, for non-valve AFib prophylaxis, and rivaroxaban and apixaban also for DVT prophylaxis in hospital. Batrixaban, interestingly, has a DVT prophylaxis indication, but that's focused not just in hospital, but up to 42 days post-discharge. So they were really the only one that looked at doing DVT prophylaxis in the outpatient setting. Um, additionally, although this is not anything they've gotten an FDA indication for, some facilities have elected to use rivaroxaban or apixaban for uh, VTE prophylaxis in people with severe COVID infection. So people are hospitalized for a while, severe level of disease, elevated D-dimers, and they've been usually using four to six weeks of either rivaroxaban or apixaban post-discharge. Um, in some places, like my facility is actually using Lovenox, um, but there are several that are using a DOAC. Again, this is an off-label indication. So bleeding issues with the oxabans, right? Um, GI is the most common. CNS is 
rare. And a lot of these other abnormal bleeding sites like retroperitoneal hemorrhage, airway hemorrhage, hemoptysis are also very rare with the oxibans. Um, we actually reviewed all the serious bleeding issues in our anticoagulated population over a year. And it came out to be, you know, probably about 60 to 70% of the bleeds that we saw with the oxibans were GI bleeding. Um, morphine was kind of all over the place, but it was mostly GI bleeding. There were some CNS bleeds that seemed to happen more commonly with trauma patients. Um, but trixaban, interestingly, does have a warning for spinal epidural hematoma. Um, that is in the study in people who have had some type of procedure in lumbar puncture, spinal anesthesia, um, epidural catheter, et cetera. Looking specifically at trauma patients, at least the largest um, retrospective analysis done so far, they have a much lower symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage than vitamin K antagonists. Um, again, looking at isolated head trauma, the vitamin K antagonists are in 17%, and that was going to have 24 hours post-injury. Um, the DOAC's about 5%, and the delayed bleeding rate was a little bit lower as well. Interest have not zero. Um, this protocol kept everybody for 24 hours and did an initial head CT and then repeat head CT 24 hours and then compared it to a non-anticoagulated cohort. Um, looking at the overall bleed rate for the DOACs, both symptomatic ICH and delayed bleeding, actually seems similar to the controls. So if you read it that way, it does, the DOACs do not appear to have any significantly increased risk of immediate or delayed head bleed compared to a control population. Um, that said, there's still ongoing data with this, so I wouldn't hang my hat on that just yet. Um, but it does appear, at least like our local trauma centers, are not considering DOAC use alone as an indication for admitting people for 23-hour OBS and repeat head imaging if there's no other indication to admit them and they're otherwise neurologically intact. So now on to my favorite subject, the antidotes. Um, Andexa alpha or Andexa is the antidote for the oxibans. It was designed for pixaban and rivaroxaban, but it's assumed to be effective for all of them because they're all fairly chemically similar. It's like called decoy 10A protein. So um, it's designed to look like 10A and preferentially bind to the oxaban. So it will actually pull them off the real 10A and get them to bind to it. So um, kind of an interesting novel concept. The dosing is based on the molar concentration of the oxaban. So fortunately, that doesn't require us to sit there and pull out Avogadro's number and figure that out for each individual medication. Um, it does depend on the specific medication, the dose of the medication, the time from the last dose. So it's not as simple to dose as, say, two vials like Praxbind. Um, they've had multiple trials. Several of them were looking at, you know, does it seem to reverse anticoagulation healthy um, volunteers? The biggest one looking at actual people with a bleeding issue was a Nexa for and that demonstrates efficacy and reversal of anticoagulation in hemostasis by lab parameters, right? So they looked at different lab parameters. They looked at things like hematoma size. So this was not a patient-oriented outcomes, rather, but disease-oriented outcomes or lab-oriented outcomes. Um, they did not value death or morbidity. So 
They didn't look to see if this improved clinical outcomes. They looked to see if it improved laboratory outcomes. There's about 10% risk for venous thromboembolism in this study um, post-reversal. And they also did a single-arm study. And this got a lot of criticism because they didn't compare it to something else. Um, and the authors made an argument, well, we can't compare it against placebo because you wouldn't treat bleeding patients with nothing. And they said this medication already got an FDA indication for reversal of anti-10A inhibitors. It did not have any other medications with this specific indications. They said, well, you know, we didn't compare it against, say, four-factor PCC because four-factor PCC doesn't have an indication. Um, so this was a single-arm trial. So there was no blinding. So there was obviously concern that there could be some bias in the results. All right, so now our next group, the heparin. So low molecular weight heparin noxaparin is the most commonly used one. Um, Anti-10A is the best test. And again, as we said before, that's not the easiest test to get. Half-life is four and a half to seven hours with 12 hours for anticoagulation effects, which kind of goes on the fact that we usually dose this BID unless you use a higher dose to try and get a longer duration of anticoagulation effects. The treatment for severe bleeding with this is protamine. Now, protamine is fairly well associated with unfractured heparin. Um, with low molecular weight heparin, it seems to have some efficacy, but not as much. That's largely because, interestingly enough, there seem to be a different size molecular fragments in low molecular weight heparin. As a result of this, the protamine binds better, it seems, to larger ones and smaller ones, and you can wind up having issues where some of the inoxaparin's bound, some of it isn't, compared to unfractionated heparin, where it binds much better to the molecule. And again, as a result, you get variable reversal. Um, so the protamine is not quite a magic bullet. When you look at the dosing of the protamine, it really depends on time from the last heparin dose. Um, and it kind of breaks down to how many minutes um, this is one that, to be perfectly honest, I've rarely given. Back when I was a resident at Lovenox, had first become kind of a big thing. We had cardiologists print asking us to Lovenox every single person who was admitted with chest pain. And then we started finding people were getting hypotensive and shocky afterwards on the floor, and we found out that a lot of them were getting retroperitoneal hematomas. So then we had to familiarize ourselves with protamine dosing. Although, Again, the protamine didn't seem quite as effective for this as for regular unfractionated heparin. Um, that said, I've rarely had to reverse Lovenox. Now, aspirin and clopidogrel are plavix, aka DAPT, um, both interfere with platelet adhesion aggregation. This is going to kind of quick. There's no real strategy beyond supportive care. If you transfuse platelets, you seem to have an increased mortality, actually. So despite the fact that you think, well, the platelets that we have aren't working, let's give working platelets, that just doesn't seem to help. Um, recommend strategies. You know, if they have mild bleeding issues, they actually recommend just not changing anything, keep them on the DAPT. If they got moderate bleeding, they recommend holding one agent. They prefer the aspirin and then try and restart the DAPT in three days once the bleeding is under control. If there's severe bleeding, stop DAPT, you know, resuscitate source control. So if they got a bleeding ulcer going in, trying to the ulcer, et cetera. And then reevaluate the agents when bleeding is controlled. 
Now, obviously, there's certain indications. Somebody recently had a drug-eluting stent placed where their risk of instant rethrombosis is high without particularly plavics. Um, but there's still times when the bleeding issues are significant enough that you're not going to be able to do that. I've occasionally seen them still put in bare metal stents in patients who have other bleeding issues because they know that they're just not going to be able to safely keep them on Plavix. Just some brief words about the other direct thrombin inhibitors. Bavalarudin's rarely used anymore, less bleeding than heparin, or the glycoprotein inhibitors, but higher rates of thrombosis. Um, that's really a cath lab drug. Argatraban, similar to kind of a cath lab or inpatient drug. Thrombosis associated with uh, hepatitis thrombocytopenia, but it's also got higher mortality rates because when it bleeds, there's really nothing you can give to reverse it. Um, there's no there's no really um, discrete reversal agent for either of these. They get very limited indications. Find a paranex. Similarly, with the advent of DOAX, I've seen that used very rarely. Um, it's also an injectable 10A inhibitor. The indexa has not been studied in find a paranex. So there's no real reversal agent for it. Again, the treatment, like with these other ones, is supportive care. So just like in some other therapeutics, we use a bleeding patient, right? Platelet transfusion, most cases, it's increased mortality. Um, you know, you can get temporary boost if somebody's thrombocytopenic from severe liver disease or splenic sequestration. Um, but for most everything else, it doesn't really seem to help a whole heck of a lot. Um, DDAVP is helpful. They got von Willebrand's disease, but it doesn't seem helpful in medication-induced bleeding disorders. And conjugated estrogen similarly seem to work well for uremic platelet dysfunction, but they don't really seem to do a whole heck of a lot for medication-induced platelet dysfunction. And so the next one is TXA. This is kind of like the magnesium of procoagulants, and something that we try to keep using to find indications for. Um, it's a synthetic lysine, synthetic amino acid that prevents the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin. It stabilizes clots by preventing the degradation of fibrin. Um, interestingly, although this isn't the first thing that we think of for it, it's only FDA-approved uses for severe menorrhagia. Um, it does reduce death due to trauma-induced coagulopathy, particularly if it's given the first three hours. That's why there's been a lot of pre-hustle protocols utilizing it now. Um, Several years ago, my previous job was at a level one trauma center. It had its own air medical service. And we'd started giving tranexamic acid to selected trauma patients um, on the helicopter. Uh, it's been studied for head injury. It doesn't seem to improve mortality in isolated head injury. They've looked at it for a bunch of other stuff. Dental ENT bleeding, postpartum bleeding, post-surgical bleeding in multiple areas. And probably the coolest one was nebulized um, for hemoptysis. Most of these have not been in anticoagulated patients except for some dental and epistaxis studies. They did take a big look at for GI bleeding, but it doesn't seem to really help too much in people with GI bleeding, especially like your big variceal bleed. This is how, can it help a medication reduce coagulopathy? So not too many studies have actually looked at this. So most of the anticoagulants actually prevent clot formation. Remember, 10A thrombin, you can't convert fibrinogen to fibrin, so you can't make that clot. So since TXA can't reverse any of that stuff, and its role is primarily in preventing clot breakdown, if you can't form the clot to begin with, and there's no clots, then TXA is probably not going to do a whole heck of a lot. Um, 
So I've seen some benefit with dental extractions and anticoagulant patients or select ENT procedures. You know, people who have had, for example, a tonsillectomy or biopsy done, people with severe epistaxis, they've looked at using topical TXA for that. And as I said, they had that one case of somebody got nebulized TXA for hemoptysis. But overall, its use in medication-related coagulopathy seems to be very limited. So to go on to our case resolution, so the patient was given four-factor PCC and vitamin K, went to the OR and got tracheostomy evacuation hematoma, his discharge on post-op day four, and then he was ultimately switched back to aspirin only. His CHADS VAS score was one. Um, his compliance was an issue, so they thought he was too high risk to put back on warfarin. He entered an alcohol treatment program as well, which hopefully is going to help a lot of his compliance issues and other medical issues, both short and long term. So to summarize, the most common anticoagulant type things we're going to see are vitamin K antagonists, 10A inhibitors, and platelet inhibitors. Um, we do see direct thrombin inhibitors along molecular weight heparins used less frequently on the outpatient now. Um, Four-factor PCC produces more rapid reversal of vitamin K antagonist-dependent coagulopathy. You see vitamin K, though, because four-factor PCC actually is relatively short-lived activity. It seems to clear out within a few hours. So if you don't get the vitamin K, there's a chance that they will become re-anticoagulated. Um, and DEX is the treatment for the oxabans. There's methodologic issues with the trials, and they looked primarily at lab parameters, not clinical parameters. But that said, right now, it's the only FDA-approved game in town for the, these medications. And if you're looking at trying to start an anticoagulant, DOAX and Warfarin have comparable effectiveness for most indications. Any questions or comments, please feel free to contact me, gerald.maloney at va.gov. Thank you very much. GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians. To purchase CME for the episode you just listened to, please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.